thank you and praise you for the peace that is ours through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you're a God who reveals yourself to us through your word and through your Son, Jesus. And we pray even now for this time of speaking your word, that you'd anoint the brother here to open your word, that we might hear you, and that we might be honored, that we might honor you and glorify you as a God who's revealed yourself to us. Lord, speak to us. Give us ears to hear. We pray for the working of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I'd ask that you please turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. I want to say it's a privilege and it's an honor to be up here bringing the word before you all. A privilege because no righteousness of my own qualifies me for this position. And an honor because I get to bring the word of the creator of the universe. I want to thank you all because I'm standing up here because of this congregation, because of the work that God has done through you in blessing me in pouring into my life. And so I want you to know that if you hear anything that is a blessing to you today from what I say, please know that that is God blessing the labors that you have worked out and rejoice and be encouraged to keep working. And if you hear anything that is wrong or that is an error or doesn't bless you, know that I still need you as a congregation. <laughs> um, so with that, I wanted to let you all know that I love you and thank you. Today is Reformation Day, a day where we celebrate the anniversary of what is the start of the Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther went to the church in Wittenberg and nailed his theses to the door, decrying the ways in which the church had moved away from the true teaching of the gospel, from the true teaching of justification by faith, that the only way in which someone is made righteous before God is by faith in Jesus Christ and not by any works that they do. And God, in his marvelous sovereignty, has decided to bring this passage that we're going to be studying today on Reformation Sunday. It struck me as I was studying for it just how fitting a passage it was. Um, And it even made me laugh when I finally realized it, that in this passage we see Peter being confronted by Paul. Now, the Catholic Church would teach that Peter is the first pope. Um, While this is not correct, it's what they would believe. And so we have Peter, the first pope, being corrected by Paul for the ways in which he has stepped away from the truth of the gospel. And so before we even get into the passage, we have our first point of application confront those who step away from the truth of the gospel, both inside of the church and outside, and even if that means you have to nail your arguments to their door. Please read with me Galatians 2, 14 through 19. 
But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with me, my words and my heart, and with this congregation, their hearts, as we as I preach the word. Renew again within all of us the vigor of the life that you made to dwell within us when you saved us. Please keep my words in step with the truth of the gospel as I preach and keep all of our actions as I preach and please keep all of our actions in step with the gospel so that we may hold fast to the good news of the love of Christ and be conformed to his image. We thank you for this gathering, for your word, the way it reveals you and transforms us. We fall desperately short, Lord, and need you in all things. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but your word endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. And so before we get into what's being talked about in this passage proper, we have to address the background, the things that we're leading up to it. This is always important when we're coming to Scripture, that every section we read, we try to understand in the context, in the flow of the argument. Sometimes we may be able to correctly interpret a verse apart from that, but we will always be blessed by understanding the flow of God's word better. And so leading up to this section, Paul introduces his conflict with Peter. He had come to Antioch and opposed Peter because Peter was separating from the Gentiles and would ref- was refusing to eat with them. And in the midst of this separation, he drew other Jews in the church to him. So what's, what's going on here? It's important that we understand. What's going on is that Peter is falling back into the Old Testament laws, into their ways. In the Old Testament, the law outlines certain restrictions for how you can eat, what foods you can have. And these restrictions were keeping Peter from eating with the other Christians in the church from the Gentiles. And so we have to understand that 
leading up to this. We also have to understand the background of Galatians as a whole. Why is Paul even bringing up this confrontation? What does it matter? And when we we turn back to chapter 1, when Paul in verse 6 expresses his astonishment that they are departing from the gospel, we begin to see the point of the letter of Galatians. Paul is writing to them because they have been tempted to move away from the truth of the gospel. They have been tempted to add other things in, in the situation, in their situation, they've been tempted to push Gentiles to be circumcised, to add in a work to the requirements of being part of the body of Christ. And in that, they've, they've moved away from the gospel. So Paul is writing to them, and this is the overarching point of the book of Galatians, to hold fast to the gospel, to not let anything or anyone pull you away from it one bit. And so in light of that, Paul has made multiple arguments as to why we should hold fast to the gospel. The first argument he makes is that he brought the gospel with the authority of God, that it was given directly to him, and this makes it something that you should follow, that you should hold fast to. The second argument is that it is powerful enough to transform even Paul's life. Before he was a Christian, he was killing Christians, hunting them down, bringing them in to be tortured for the name of Christ. So it's powerful enough to turn someone whose life looks like that into a preacher of it. So you should hold fast to the gospel. And you should also hold fast to the gospel because it was affirmed, the gospel he preached was affirmed by all the other apostles who were with Christ. We know that this is the true word of God. And so keeping in mind this overarching idea of holding fast to the gospel and the reasons why we need to, we come to this text. Paul is confronting Peter because his conduct has fallen out of step with this truth, the truths of the gospel. We read again in verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The first thing I want to point out to you there is that Paul specifically expresses why he felt the need to confront Peter. Because he saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so Paul begins to call out this hypocrisy where Peter, despite the salvation he received in Christ, through faith in Christ, has begun to turn back to the law and divide from the body of Christ. This is a hypocrisy because it's, it's turning away from the same truth that, govern, that saved him. His actions no longer depict or represent the truth that he trusts in to be saved. And so Paul initially just calls out the hypocrisy in Peter's action. 
But then he begins to unpack the ways in which that hypocrisy is discordant with the gospel, the ways in which it doesn't mesh with these truths. He says in verse 15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person, in in verse 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Paul starts to identify himself with Peter, with the Jews in in Antioch and the Jews in Galatia, showing that he, he has the same starting point as they do in regards to the law. He was born under it. He was raised under its teaching and its rules. And that's in contrast to the situation of the Gentiles who were born outside of the law, outside of the teaching and rules of the law. And so Paul identifies that that he has the same circumstance as they do in the law, having been raised in the law. And so it's not because any difference in upbringing that Paul is advocating that they don't return to the law. He uses that to add emphasis to his point that no matter what your circumstance before Christ is, we all know that there is no righteousness to be found in the law and there is only righteousness to be found in faith in Christ. And so he he begins to transition from that common point, yet or nevertheless, showing with this, this point that the status of of Jewish people, their legal privilege doesn't has less bearing because of the truth he's about to say. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that renders the significance of the law minimal because it cannot save And obviously, that thing which is incapable of producing righteousness in your life is not anywhere near as significant as your only hope to be right with God, Jesus Christ. And so Paul points out the discord. He addresses justification from a Jewish position that the Jew to come to Christ had to acknowledge that they had no hope of finding righteousness in the law. As long as a Jew was still counting on the law to provide any part of their righteousness before God, they could not fully trust in Christ and they could not be saved. So... This is what Peter gets wrong with breaking fellowship with the, the Gentiles, with not eating with them. Since the key thing is how you are right before God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ, when Peter 
breaks away from that key thing to emphasize these laws that provide nothing for our righteousness. He is breaking unity and fellowship with other believers on the grounds of a lesser thing. And this is very important to understand, especially in context of that society. Eating together was a sign of intimacy, of close bonding, of togetherness. This is why the Pharisees were so shocked when Jesus ate with prostitutes and tax collectors. And so when Peter separates from the Gentiles, he is out of step with the truth of the gospel because he is breaking unity and fellowship with other people who are saved the same way he is, only by faith and with no part, with the law having no part in it. He is also breaking step with the truth of the gospel because he's returning to the law that had no value for his salvation. A law that cannot save you, the law that cannot save you is not the law that you should live by after you're saved by Christ. Paul breaks from his argument to begin to handle an objection that he anticipates from perhaps some of his listeners. We read in verses 17 and 18, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then not a servant, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. The objection that Paul is anticipating here might go something a bit like this. If coming to Christ means you have to abandon the law, does that mean that Christ promotes sin or lawlessness? If coming to Christ means admitting that there's no justification to be found in the law, is Christ breaking down good things of God? Paul's answer to this is an emphatic denial. Certainly not. And he transitions to a counter-argument to show where the real fault lies. That the fault isn't in the tearing down of the law. The fault is when people come and try to rebuild it. He turns their argument on him on its head with a counter-argument. Tearing down is not the problem. So he, he says in verse 18 again, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Christ's tearing down of the law does not promote sin. What promotes sin is that when the law is tor- torn down, if when we begin to rebuild it with our actions. The logic goes something like this, uh, that tearing, the tearing down of something isn't inherently problematic or a bad thing. There are times where things need to be removed, where they come to an end, and the implication is that the law is one of these things. With Christ, it has come to its end, and it belongs being destroyed and torn down. The only, what really reveals the error is this, 
is if after saying that the law needs to be torn down, which is what happens when a Jew comes to faith, they admit that the law has no value for their righteousness. If after that they come back and begin to rebuild it. If the way that they live starts to fall out of context with the way they are saved, that's when they admit that they've transgressed. So it's not in Christ, in Christ's tearing down of the law that we find problem, but in the rebuilding of it. Paul turns this objection brilliantly into an argument on his side. Why Peter, the Jews, um, need to abandon the law and hold fast to the gospel. So what have we seen so far in this passage? We've seen that Peter's behavior is out of step with the gospel. Beginning in verse 14, Paul writes that their conduct was out of step. And in the end of verse 14, he expresses that Peter was forcing others to act in a way that he wasn't even acting himself. That he was pushing them to submit to a law that he had borne witness in his life that he was no longer subject to. In verse 16, we read again that we're not justified through works of the law, but through faith in Christ. And so we see how as, we be, as the church begins to trust in works of the law, they are falling out of step with the truth of the gospel. And then in verse 18, we learn that the real trespass is to turn back to the law when that isn't how you were saved. If you weren't saved by the law, turning back to it makes no sense. And so all these ideas are moving towards a peak in Paul's argument. He's building to a crescendo. We're going to touch on the, the first part of that peak in verse 19. As Paul begins to, to couch this discussion about how we are saved and how we live in terms of life and death. We read in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Here the true heart of the argument begins to appear why you can't turn back to the things that came before is because in your salvation, you had to be dead to them to live to God. Paul is emphasizing, in case the, the point wasn't clear before, that it would be clear now, that if you had to die, be dead to the law to live to God, it makes no sense for you to live to the law once again. So, so let's make it clear. Peter needs to not separate from the Gentiles because he's dead to the law that would cause any reason to do that. And what he has in common with those Gentiles is the same thing that makes him alive, faith in Christ. 
the same thing that makes them alive. And why the Galatian churches need to not let circumcision divide the body in any way is because they are dead to the law that circumcision comes from. And what gives them unity is the same thing that gives them life, faith in Christ. We follow the argument of Paul here. I died to the law. How did he die to the law? It was through the law that he died to the law. The law reveals Paul's sinfulness. It reveals Jews' sinfulness. And if we were under it, it would reveal our sinfulness. And through that, it puts you to death. Because that law, once it reveals your sinfulness, by revealing that you cannot perfectly keep it, also condemns you and offers no hope. But this understanding of the law all becomes necessary to live to God. That's the the point of the word there, so, so that I might live to God. That this death to the law is necessary to live to God. So if you want to be in reality, if Peter, if the Galatian church want to live in reality, they need to be dead to the law just like they were dead to the law when they were saved. They need to not submit to it and follow it in any way. And if they want to live in reality, they have to live to God through faith in Jesus Christ the same way they were made alive to God. Paul will continue the peak, the crescendo of this argument next week in the rest of the verses of uh, chapter 2. And Brother Gary will cover, cover that. Um, and I hope it will be a blessing. But for us, for now, why does what we've looked at matter to us? Well, first and foremost... You shouldn't separate from other believers based on what foods they eat. Um, There are people in this room who are aware that I love ham and bacon very much. Um, And I'm very glad that none of you have decided to separate from me on account of that. Because you'd be out of step with the truth of the gospel. But because I don't think many of you have been tempted to do that, we should consider a few more points of application to our lives from this text. The point he's making is also, is not just about food, but also that they should not submit to the Old Testament laws. This becomes important for believers as we're reading through the word and trying to figure out how to obey the word and live our life. When you read the Old Testament law, do not read it as a set of instructions that you are called to submit to and follow. It was weak and insufficient, great in many ways, but its point was to point to Christ. And now that we have Christ, it makes no sense to turn back to the law. A great example of this is the Sabbath. 
In the law, we read that we must keep the Sabbath holy. And it's a a picture of resting from works, that at, at the end of the week, you need to take a break from doing works. But this this rest was limited in scope and in time. It was a rest from physical labor, and it was a rest one day of the week. And we see the weakness of it in that limitation in how Christ is the fullness of it. Christ is our Sabbath rest in a way that the Sabbath rest of the Old Testament could never compare with. It's not just a rest from works of our hand, it's a rest from works of righteousness. Now, we're no longer fighting and struggling to be right with God, something we were powerless to do. We rest and trust in Christ, and then through love for him, live out the righteousness that he has given to us. And it is not just one day a week that we get to enjoy that, but all of time for all eternity. And so it makes no sense to turn back to that Sabbath rest because the greater rest is in Christ who has come. And that's just one example. So when we look at the Old Testament law, we should see in it ways to understand the character of God, his values, and we should understand the ways that are it is lacking so we can rejoice when we see the ways that Christ isn't. But even more than these blessings, there are more blessings to be applied to us from this passage. For them in this circumstance, the principle works out that they need to not turn back to the law because when they were saved, it was apart from the law. But for us, the principle is that our conduct needs to keep with the truth of the gospel. And that extends far beyond the truths that are in the law. It expands to repentance, to faith, to our conduct in many different ways. So if you are a believer, the main thing I want you to take away from this is that your conduct needs to be in step with the truths that save you. Let's consider this a bit deeper. First of all, you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That means that if your conduct is going to be in step with the truth of the gospel, you need to live every single day by faith in Jesus Christ. If you persist in sin, you're also out of step with the truth of gospel. When we persist in sin and refuse to repent, we are forgetting that we are saved by when we repent and believe in Christ. And so we are no longer living in, in accord with the way we are saved. When we allow our own struggles with sin and the guilt associated with that to keep us from being with the body, from being in the church, from praying to God, from studying the Bible, from any Christian things, when we allow that guilt to separate us, we are failing to acknowledge in our life the truth that our only hope 
is faith in Christ apart from our righteousness because we'll never be righteous enough to earn heaven. And when we look down on others because they're sinning in a way that we don't sin or that we're not struggling with, we're failing to remember that apart from faith in Christ, we are exactly the same as they are, dead in our sins and trespasses. So let us hold fast to the gospel because the gospel, because how we act declares what we believe about our salvation. And let us hold fast to the gospel because how we are saved declares how we're supposed to act. So if we are saved when we repented and believed, then we need to live every day in repentance and belief. And if we are justified despite struggling with sin, we should be encouraged to know that our righteousness will always stand in heaven and press on. And if we, apart from Christ, are different, are no different from any other sinner, then we need to love one another without distinction. And we need to love those in the world. Before I close, I want to give a word to anyone here who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't have faith in Christ for their justification. I have two things. I have a warning and good news. Paul points out here at the end of verse 16 because by works of the law no one will be justified that truth expands to to all of our life by your good deeds you will never be counted righteous in the courts of heaven and if you die trusting in your good deeds for righteousness in heaven you will go to hell and you will suffer forever but the good news is the other part of verse 16 so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law if you're trusting in your own goodness, which if you're honest to yourself, you'll understand is so limited, is so flawed. You will be disappointed, but if you abandon trust in yourself and your own goodness, to trust in Christ, His goodness, and His sacrifice as a covering for your every flaw and failing, your every crime, that you've committed if you trust in him you will be justified in the courts of heaven you'll have the rest from your works and then you can fight to live every day in step with the truth of the gospel
we will reach the culmination of this argument next week. And I look forward to being blessed by that as our brother Gary brings the word. But for us, for now, we need to remember, hold fast to the gospel because the way you live needs to be connected to the way you're saved. Because how you live declares how you believe you're saved and because how you're saved declares how you need to live. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, allow our lives to be in agreement with the truth of the gospel of our salvation. If there are any ways in which we are out of step, reveal that to us. Cause us to rejoice in a salvation that is not by our works, but only by faith in your Son. And we pray for anyone here who does not know you, Lord,